Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome back to the Total Football Analysis Podcast, your weekly dose of all things football tactics and coaching related. I'm your host, Adam Scully, and we've another exciting episode for you all today. Our guest today is a man who has had more than 20 years coaching experience in the US, having performed a plethora of roles throughout his career, from being a director of coaching to a director of scouting to a head coach to an assistant coach, working as a coach with the Atlanta Silverbacks, OL Reign and the NWSL, and even the assistant coach of women's soccer at Georgia State University. Ricky Clark has done it all. On top of this, Ricky also owns his own company, Master Coach Online, and hosts the Master Coach Online podcast, with both being centered around football or soccer education for players and coaches. Ricky does some truly wonderful work across the social media platforms too to help educate his viewers to look at football more analytically in the same way that TFA does. I'm delighted to have Ricky join us for an episode today. He was an excellent guest with a lot of skin in the game, and I hope you learned from him as much as I did. Please give us a five-star rating to show support for what we do here at TFA and share with as many of your family, friends and followers as possible as we try to bring you as many excellent guests like Ricky as possible. Also, next week we have a wonderful episode where we will have our own writers on the podcast previewing the World Cup in Qatar from a tactical perspective. So stay tuned for that. So now, without further ado, I'll stop off and go speak to Ricky. Hi, Ricky. I'm delighted you could join us today in the podcast. How have you been? Good, Adam. Thanks for uh, thanks for connecting with me. I really appreciate it. Humbled that you uh, reached out and asked to jump on the show. No, it's amazing to have you on. You're five hours behind, I think, at the minute, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's eleven thirty right now. So um, yeah, we're uh, on Eastern Time Zone. Yeah. And you said you were recording the podcast before you came on this. I thought, my God, he he, get, he gets up early to work. Yeah, absolutely. I I interviewed a a mental performance coach this morning, Dr. Tiffany Jones. So it was an unbelievable podcast, to be honest. Loads of interesting bits and pieces on there. And she's like, she's one of the best. I've known her for years and always wanted to get her on a show and speak with her. So Amazing. You've had Thomas Gronemark on too recently, haven't you? Yes. Yes. Thomas, Thomas was on a couple of weeks ago. He was actually in Philadelphia when, when we did the, um, when we did the interview and uh, yeah, that guy's just travels all over the world. I mean, he's, he's, um, his schedule is crazy. He's, he's found a part of the market that works and, you know, obviously whatever he's doing is working as well because he's working with some top, top clubs. So. Well, I've I've tried several times to get Thomas on, but every time I do, as you said, his schedule's so busy, he'll come to me and say, "Oh, well, I'm actually, I'm in, I'm in Philly on this day and in here and here." I'm like, oh, "Look, it's that's that's fine." Obviously, a very busy guy. Ricky, you've been in the coaching game for more than two decades now. Could you provide the listeners with a bit of background into how you started coaching and you know how you first got a grasp that oh, I really enjoy this. To be honest with you, it's probably like most people that get into coaching and become coaches, you know, like my dad was my coach from a young age and, you know, I was always inspired by my father. And and then as I I grew older, I'm the youngest of three boys. Um, Both my brothers were coaches, so I would tag along, watch them coach, jump into their training sessions with their teams and always like was interested with regards to coaching. I don't know if it was something that I was like, I want to be a coach. I want to work with people and I'm going to go to university, get a degree that's going to help me coach. Um, I ended up going to university and it was only really when I was at university where I applied for a coaching job in America to do summer camps. 
And I went out there for one summer to New York and just sort of fell in love with it and was like, wow, this is like something I'd love to do more of. And um, just sort of stayed on that coaching path, really. And obviously, I've been here for like 20 plus years now. I've lived here as much as I've lived in the UK. And um, my coaching has just developed to different levels. I've worked at pretty much every level of the game, whether it's working with three-year-olds in their first introduction to soccer or working with, you know, world superstars, to, to, to be completely honest with you. So I feel really fortunate that I've managed to go through the whole process. I haven't skipped any processes. Um, and, you know, I know you've got some questions, but I feel fortunate that I've managed to see the whole picture. And I think that's helped me in my in my growth as a coach as well. And how exactly has that helped you? Because that's something I, I, I do want to touch on. You know, working with little kids is completely different, obviously, to working with them, grown men and women. And it is it is a tough task. I've done, not, I haven't done men's game myself, but I've done different levels of youth coaching. And almost every year is like a completely different personality you have to deal with. Because preteens are, you know, we all know what preteens are like in terms of their attitude. And sometimes they can be a bit you know, less willing to learn than little kids or maybe as they get older, they are more willing. So how is your kind of, and not just in terms of age groups and talking about just your different roles, how has that helped you as a coach to become better from when you first started? Well, I think it teaches you to become more self-aware of the way in which you you coach with people. You know, I think when you're working with younger children, you need to be less worried about your coaching points and more about how you engage mm -hmm. children um, and then when you get into the teens, it's for me, it's more um, guiding them than actually telling them because they have all these social uh, environments where they're told what to do, their parents tell them what to do, teachers tell them what to do. So you're almost in this guiding area of their uh, soccer process, if you like. And then when you work with older, more experienced professional players, it's more a case of asking questions. Why did we make this choice? Um, have you thought about doing this? Uh, may, maybe making them more curious, if you like, about their decisions. And I think once you start to develop that full spectrum of um, coaching methods, coaching levels, if you like, it helps you when you go into difficult environments. It helps you when you're perhaps standing up and talking in front of people. It helps you when you're perhaps trying to deliver a message because you're always dealing with different people. That's the one thing I love about coaching. You can't really paint everyone with one brush. You know, it, there's there's so many different levels. There's so many different ways people learn. And the fact that I've managed to work with all those age groups and those levels, I think has helped me become a more, I would say, polished. Some people might not say I'm as polished but a more polished coach when working with different age groups. So do you think, do you think that it's, it's more important to be, to have more of a universal style of coaching or is it more important to be adaptable and flexible to bend to kind of the age group or the people that you're working with? Well, I mean, that's a loaded question. I think you go into certain environments and you have to coach in a specific way, right? Uh, I think, you know, when you're in the pro environment, one of the things that I think, I was really interested in just in my last professional environment, which was OL Rain, was I thought when I went there, they were in a tough spot. They were near the bottom, they hadn't won games. 
Um, I thought the coach was going to be very much like, we need to do A, B, and C. We need to do A, B, and C to get out of this hole. And it was almost the complete opposite. It was almost like, I really care about you. And if we do A, B, and C, we're going to be successful. And, you know, they did A, B, and C. They got out of that hole. They had a really successful year. But it was a completely different approach. I thought it might have been about backs against the walls, but it was almost more of a human approach to, to the situation. Whereas I think sometimes perhaps when you're in a youth environment and you're a director of a club, there needs to be a degree of structure when you're running clubs. And if you just take a laissez-faire approach to it and say, well, you're a really good coach, you can do what you do, and you've been successful, so you keep coaching that team, the whole picture begins to change and just be very chaotic. So. Can you give some structure to your club? Is there a way that you want all your teams to play? Is there is there principles that you want your teams to have with someone to come and watch them play? Is there principles in the way in which you teach? You know, at certain age groups, like I was saying before, do you teach differently? Um, and I, I believe structure is important, but I also believe that the flexibility side is also very important. You know, some of the things we'll talk about perhaps later is flexibility in your tactical approach as i've got older i've i've been more flexible perhaps in my tactical understanding or approach to games i was from a young age i was very much like i want my teams to play this way and i want them to look like this and we're going to play this system and it's only as i've got older and realized that perhaps it's more about references and if the ball's in this area of the field, what do we want it to look like? If the ball's in that area of the field, what do we want it to look like? That I've changed or some would say matured in my tactical approach, you know. So to answer your question, I think it I think it all depends on what environment you're in, you know. Um, maybe if you're a director in a youth environment, you have a certain degree of structure, but there's a little bit of flexibility in it. Maybe when you're dealing with world-class players, there's a different flexibility. Mm -hmm. um, but for me, I think it's a, a little bit of a mixture of both. That is really interesting when you said about the more experience you've got, the more willing you are to be flexible with your tactical approach. Because I've had guests on here and some have been quite young and they have been head coaches or assistant coaches and they've always been so adamant that this, no, we play this way, I want to play this way. Whereas it's always the more experienced coaches that when I ask the question, they say, oh no, you need to be flexible. It's almost like you learn over time that... Yeah, yeah no, if, you, I, if you don't I, bend, you'll break. No, listen. I, I mean, I was speaking to someone about it the other day, and um, you know, I've when I remember when the first club I went to, we were we were like steadfast on our on our style of play. It was like our young teams are going to play this formation, our older teams are going to play this formation, and at that time, it actually worked because we went into an environment that was a bit chaotic, mm -hmm. and we gave it some structure. Um, but I also believe as you as you get older and the way in which you work with players also plays a role in that, in, in the degree of if you trust them more and you give them more control and more accountability, then you can also play in different ways. And I think the game is evolving, right? I was listening to like... I was listening to Danny Murphy talk the other day on, on Talk Sport, and he was talking about Graham Potter and his approach that the players weren't quite, that they, they won't, he didn't think that they would stick with him if he kept changing things, right? And I think we're in a different generation now when it comes to tactical 
approaches to games. Gone are the days where it's like we're going to play four four two and we're just yeah. going to stick to that four four two because we've got the players and we know how to play it. I think the game's evolved. It's got faster. It's got more dynamic. And the more you can be flexible within the game, the more you can cause other teams problems. I'm I'm biased. I'm a Chelsea fan. I I like what Graham Potter's doing at the moment. But I also think the more we can teach younger players that approach, the better the player we're going to produce. You yeah. know. Um, so, so you would think then that the players will be more adaptable in years to come because still and, and we see it now there are still players that are very adaptable I know I think it's Jurgen Klopp talks about the need for versatility in, in players and mm-hmm. almost I mean I remember when I was young versatility was seen as such a bad thing because it was mm-hmm. seen as you're just kind of like a, you're a squad player and you just you just get shoehorned in wherever but it's becoming so important now because as you said the tactical the, um, the, the modern game has developed massively tactically mm-hmm. and players need to be able to play different positions and Graham Potter's a wonderful example Julian Nagelsmann at Bayern Munich and other so yeah I think you're well I'll ask you obviously do you think that in years to come it will all be about flexibility for players to play different roles yeah no absolutely you know I was fortunate I went on a coach education trip to um, Italy and we went to Verona um, and we spent like a week at Verona and um we had like hands-on. I mean, we could walk to the side of the field, stand next to the coach, listen to the coach. Well, I mean, it was unbelievable, the access we had. And then it got to the games at the weekend and they were like, right, in this block, we're playing a 4-4-2. Like this season, we're playing 4-4-2. And they were playing a game and they were getting like overrun in the middle uh, against three players. And they never changed it. They never adjusted. And then afterwards, they would give us like a, this is what we saw in the game. This is how we tried to solve it. And the coach said, you know, every season we we play a different formation um, because, A, we want the players to be tactically flexible. If they make it into the first team, they can adjust and play different formations. But, B, we wanted to educate the players and say, right, we're playing a 4-4-2 and we're playing against three in midfield. Like, how do we solve this problem? And he said, in in... Other clubs, they might say, oh, we'll switch to three in the middle and solve that problem. His focus was, how do we solve that problem with two in midfield? And that was part of their soccer education or their football education, if you like. And they solely believed that if every season we played a different formation, that would lead to the the, uh, education of the player improving. And that was almost like the first time where I started thinking, oh, maybe I'm like, Maybe I'm way off the pace here if I just think a four three three is like gonna break the break the world, you know, and and produce the best players. And I started tinkering with different systems, like the next system that they were playing or they had coming up was like a three five two. And I went back and started tinkering and messing around with systems. So I definitely believe that if players are flexible enough, um, they're gonna get more opportunity, more and more. Mm-hmm. Speaking of formations, then obviously you've coached at you know all levels upwards from you said from age three onwards. When the formations and things like that and player roles become more solidified for you, when do you believe? Um, because I think obviously when they're younger, you don't want to narrow them down to one position. It's like from the age of five, you're a centre forward. If it is, it's it, it seems kind of well for me anyway. It's just my opinion. It seems kind of null and void because players won't get to understand the other roles within the team but then maybe when they get older you kind of do 
start to solidify them in a position, but when do you think that kind of kicks in? I think it, I think you can like to be completely honest with you. When you talk about roles, I I, I talk more about principles, and you can you can start developing that from a really young age. You know, like whether it's your attacking principles, our first principle of attack is also penetrating, and you can start talking about that from when they're playing four v four. You know, whoever's bottom of the diamond, can you play your, the pass forwards? And then that goes into 77 when you're playing with two centre-backs, right? Whenever you get the ball, can you play forwards? And you can start imprinting roles and principles from that young age. And I think this is where perhaps as, as um, youth educators, we get caught up too much in formations. Like, I watch social media now, and it's flooded. Like, some people might... Some people might question me because, you know, my Instagram is all about different tactics, 11v11. But I watch social media now and there's people talking about tactics at 7v7, 9v9. And, and while I agree there's a certain degree of understanding required, I'm more a, a proponent of uh, principles within those environments. So it's not about A going to B. It's not about you know b to c it's more about right this is the picture that's created how do we solve it based on our principles so an example is uh, again i'll use attacking if our first principle of attack is penetrating can i solve penetration with a pass can i solve penetration with a dribble can i solve penetration with a longer ball that breaks the pressure um and the more you teach that from a younger age the less the transition when they get older of this is your role and this is how you do it because the principles guide whatever system you play. And I think um, for a lot of people, that's somewhat of a challenge because you have to really believe in your principles and you have to own those principles. Um, so in terms of very detailed position, specific behaviors, I think you start looking at it as soon as they go into 11v11, right? When your centre-backs get the ball in this area, what are the you know, midfielders trying to do? They're trying to break lines. What are the uh, full-backs doing? If the ball goes forwards, are the full-backs trying to support passes played forwards? If the ball's in wide areas, are your wide players staying wide or do they come inside because that's where the space is? And then you start layering those... Um, behaviors or those roles into your principles and i think the more you can the more you can give them options like i have a concept that i'm working on right now called mapping like everything i do performance mapping tactical mapping education mapping it's about giving choices right on a map you can you can start down here and there's loads of different ways to get mm. over here and I think sometimes in, in soccer, we think that it's that, like start here and go straight up. Um, so I think the more choices, the more uh, pictures we can create for them and also educate them on perhaps what are the right choices. Um, again, the more educated the player is going to be. So this is something actually that you're speaking of that I came to me last night when I was watching of course that there was huge news last night or not news I suppose it was a big deal that they've made in the British media anyway Manchester United beat Sheriff Terrace Ball 3-0 in the Europa League Anthony did a double 
360 spin mm-hmm. you're speaking there about principles but how important then is i'm not asking your opinion of the anthony situation because ultimately it doesn't, doesn't matter like i'm talking about just if, a, if if you have a player and they do that how important is the or do you believe expression is then for players you know if you have a player that does that on the pitch are you kind of give them a little you know hypothetical hypothetical slap on the wrist or are you okay with it because you don't you also don't want to you know prevent or nullify or stifle their creativity and you know. Well, I mean, what, the question, I saw some of that. I didn't like, I didn't see what he did. I saw some of it on social media. The question I would ask is, who are the people complaining about what he did? Well, it was, I, I know who they were. It was Robbie Savage, Paul Scholes, and, you know. That's my point, right? That's that's a an older generation yeah. of, well, that wouldn't happen when, yeah, well, you're not playing now. Mm-hmm. It's a different world. We play in a different world. We teach players differently. Players are... Uh, have grown up in a different environment. And if you go back to your principles, if I had a player right, like that now, I would say, right, our principle, when you get the ball in this area, and our principle is, first of all, can we go forwards? And you're good at dribbling and beating the player, go and dribble and beat the player. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know if it was a, just a showing off in the middle of nowhere doing something silly. I don't know if it was something like that, but if... If there's a player who has a strength and his strength is doing stepovers and, and going past players, I'm a hundred percent going to encourage it. You know, well, he did, he, so he did the, he did the spin, but he then he played a pass afterwards, and the pass didn't quite come off, but it nearly did, and he almost he almost dragged the the player to step to press him, and then he just quickly slipped in behind them by doing a double three sixty spin, yeah. and it, it looked great, but of course. There's almost an in English punditry, especially like a lack, the lack of creativity is like it's almost a, a, it's it's so. Yeah, I mean, I would again, I would just down. go back to what 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 did kids think when they watched mm-hmm. that? They probably yeah. thought it was really cool. Right? Yeah, of so it's like as coaches, and I think this is where we get caught up a little bit too much. I was just talking about this before. Is like relinquishing control of what you want and giving it back to the player within your principles Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like if if you play within your principles and do what you do and you're successful then go for it like and as a coach i've been able to step back and relinquish that control is a really difficult thing to do and i think as i've got older that's probably one of the biggest things i've found like i was always like we're never going to concede a goal where my team's never concede goal we work really hard we're organized we're compact Mm-hmm. And as I've got older, I've kind of given control away to these attacking flair players that I've picked and said, right, in this area of the field, you can solve problems however you need to solve problems based on our principles. Go forwards. Don't just dribble sideways. And if you're going to dribble, go and beat someone, get past them, create an opportunity for someone else or draw someone out of a space with your run. Um, so I... I'm I'm a fan of it to be honest. Like I love watching it. I grew up watching Eden Hazard. Eden Hazard used to do that all the time. No one ever used to say anything about Eden Hazard, like and it, it, because he was successful. I think the challenge with Anthony now is Man United are not exactly setting the world on fire. And if there's Man United fans listening, I apologise. But um, you know, when Ronaldo first came to Man United, did he set the world on fire? When Drogba first went to Chelsea, did he set the world on fire? No. So I think they just need to give Anthony a little bit of time and 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 uh, 
little bit of confidence in in uh, the head coach and what he's allowing him to do and not allowing him to do. So yeah, and of course the argument was that it was there's a fine line between disrespect and expression, but I don't think he was trying to be disrespectful. For me, he that's who he is, and that's the type of player he is. And I think if you're he put a post out on social media himself and he said. You know, you can't stop me from being who I am. And that is who he is. I mean, we were I, I grew up especially with Ronaldinho. And imagine mm-hmm. Ronaldinho during the social media era. Oh, my God. The, nah. the, the people that be complaining about some of the stuff he did. But we loved it. Yeah. We loved watching that. That's what's beautiful sure. about football, you know? I mean, he's got a brand built on him because of who he was. <laughs> you know? so. Ricky, you worked as a director of, of coaching. And that means you... Well, I'm, I'll ask you now what it means. But I'm guessing you obviously oversaw you know, coaching frameworks and oversaw other coaches. Were you very hands-on? Were you very, um, you know, astute or articulate in terms of how you wanted your your coaches to coach? Would you not give out? I just mean, would you be very, would you go over and help them and say, no, no, we, want, well, we try this and we try this and this is how we want to do it within the framework? And how would you design that framework? Mm. Well, I think... The question's really interesting, right? Because well, when I was well, when I read it yesterday, when you sent it, I'm like, this is sort of almost a complete transition of me as a person. Because mm-hmm. I remember my first role; it was very black and white. We went into a club that was really like unorganized. Had a lot of parent coaches, and teams were doing whatever they wanted, trained wherever they wanted to train, and then they were using trainers to to make their teams better. So we went into a club along with an executive director and basically changed everything. We changed the name of the club. We changed the colors of the club. We built in the the younger age groups, U8 to U12, completely run by professionals, organized by professionals. We gave it structure. This is what we're going to be doing. This is what the U8 program looks like. It's going to be very ball-orientated. We're not focused on tactics an example was on the Friday, I think it was a Friday, it's a long time ago now, Thursday or the Friday, all the U8s come together, girls and boys, and we just had unlimited small-sided games. They just they get to pick the conditions of the games, and they then they just played unlimited small-sided games, and we had a winner. And we used to do that every week, and that was all about giving the game back to the kids. And then U9 through U12, they all played the same system, and we all coached the same way. It was very much um, a player-driven environment, right? We want you to do this. Can you look for A, B, and C, like I said before? And then the older age groups, there was a little bit less flexibility. There was still some people that were part-time. They weren't full-time in the program because we had a view that if we did it properly, the younger program would morph and become the full club after five years. We had a five-year plan. And that program was very black and white. It was, this is a curriculum we're going to use. We hired people and said, this is what we want you to do. This is how we want you to run your sessions. And then when we left, when I left California, I moved to, to Georgia. It was completely different. I walked into an environment at a club called Georgia Rush where it was almost driven by these core values have like 12 core values and um that drove our like environment if you like our culture our training environment and the um the way that the teams were structured they all played the same way they all had a style of play the guy before me when i walked in there had done an unbelievable job of creating this environment 
So I didn't change an awful lot, to be honest. Whereas in the first program, I changed everything. In the second program, I kept the culture. I kept the style of play. I kept the way that they they played out the back. I kept the way the players got into attack. Um, and just tried to work more on the coaches, educating the coaches. This is how we coach players. This is how we get the best out of players. Um, and did more coach education, kept the the profile in place. And then when I left Georgia Rush, I went to another club way bigger, way more successful, way more children, and then just worked within one program. So I was like the girls director. And then that's also, that was a completely different environment because my job was finding the best players and trying to create the most competitive teams within an elite environment. So that become more about coaching individual teams working with specific individual teams on what their strengths were and how they were going to grow and how they were going to get better. So I think sometimes when you're a director of coaching, I think it's very dangerous to say in California, I built a club like this. I'm going to go to Georgia and I'm going to just take what exactly what I did in California and drop it into Georgia because every, every program is different. Um, and I think that's one of the most important lessons I perhaps learned from being a coaching director that everywhere you go is different. How do you take the things that have worked for you and then perhaps restructure the program or rebuild a program and get what you need from it? You know, and um, all three of those programs, I mean, a new program right now, I've only really just got started, but there's definitely um, some things that I can see that, what I've done in the past, I can implement, but there's also some really good things that are already there that I don't need to change. So I don't need to spend that energy as a director trying to change things and influence things. You know? how, so, how often then would you review the program or the framework if if you feel that something's not working? Would you do kind of a group review with all your coaches and say, okay, maybe we don't think X, Y, and Z is working, but ABC is, or, some, or would it just be here's our plan, we're going to stick with that. Even even if you went into a new club, as you said, and the, it was already a different culture and environment, would you just kind of say, well, okay, we'll stick with this for the time being, or would you look to change things a lot, maybe not as much? Or... I'm, maybe, I'm maybe the type of person who likes to look and watch and see what's happening. Like when we was in California, we we almost it was almost like a three or four-month period, and then we were like, right, it's in such a... It's in such a mess. We need to change it right now. Um, in all the other clubs I've been in, it's been like a six-month period where you say, all right, well, this is what it looks like. Now I'm going to sit down with people and start talking to people about what we can do, how we can do things, how we might need to change things. Um, because I also believe in like what maybe what I say and what I think might not be right at that given time like but i also believe now 22 years i've been doing this job that experience as gives me the the right to have an opinion on what should be done if that makes sense without sounding too um arrogant but yeah i think i'm more of a person who likes to stand back watch see what's happening and then go in and say right this is the plan this is what i suggest this is how i think we should do things moving forwards and how important then is coach or educating yourself then because you told the story earlier about going to verona to learn how often would you look to improve to self improve yourself obviously and 
become a better coach because obviously you said you've been doing it 22 years and you've progressed so much but obviously experience will help you progress a lot but then there's gonna, you're going to have to learn yourself by doing courses or going to you know different yeah. clubs and learning etc well I think it's really important you you put yourself in environments where people challenge you to do that you know like my challenge is my challenging environment is my wife because my wife believes you you live eat sleep soccer you know you do it all the time why do you need to go and do this next other course why do you need to go over on this trip you know but I believe that that part of it is like when I went to Verona I'd never thought about playing different formations each season yeah. to challenge players and challenge their education at a game so I believe it's really important that you never quite arrive as a coach and that it's really important to put yourself in environments where you're constantly trying to learn, you're constantly trying to educate yourself. I remember I went to um, a periodization course by um, the Dutch expert Raymond, uh, forgetting his last name now, I don't know why I'm forgetting his last name. But I went, I went to a coaching course and it was about periodization and it was like an area of my coaching that I was not very good at. I was not, I was not comfortable in it. And I remember going there and feeling incredibly uncomfortable and, and Raymond creates that environment as well, because he feels like if we can replicate an uncomfortable environment, like a game or a training environment, like how do you deal with it in that environment is also how he wanted to sort of create that environment in the course as well. And I remember walking away from there thinking, I'm never going to do that again. That was so uncomfortable. But I also reflect on it now and, and say to myself um, how much of a valuable experience it was because now I'm comfortable enough going into environments where I feel uncomfortable, but realizing that it's going to serve me on the other side. Mm-hmm. So the the self-learning can never stop. I mean, it, it just never stops. You never arrive. I remember another example. I was a, I was doing my master coach diploma and we're like in this room listening to Anson Dorrance. And for, for, for those people who don't know who Anson Dorrance is, he's the most successful collegiate soccer coach. I think he's won like 23 national championships, a World Cup. And uh, Bob Warmer, who is one of the most, uh, successful American soccer coaches and a lot older than anyone else is sitting at the back of the room. So we're all going through this presentation and Anson sort of, uh, I think it was the, the course director, Jeff Tipping, gets up and says, oh, Bob, can you like let everyone know why you're in here? You're not supposed to be in here. Can you let everyone know why you're in here? Mm-hmm. And um, he said, oh, I just believe I never, I never can never stop learning. You know, and this is a guy who's been to a World Cup. He's coached multiple MLS teams. He's coached at the best, some of the best players the country has to give. And he's sitting in a presentation listening to another guy who's been incredibly successful because he knows somewhere along the line it's going to bring him value. And I think we just uh, don't want to get Debbie down on it, but I think as young coaches now, we we watch stuff online, we watch the top coaches in the world and we try and emulate them and say, oh, I'm going to be like that when I step onto the field and coach my nine-year-olds. And I think you just have to be very careful in, in the way that you work with players 
And that ongoing learning should be happening constantly, whether it's a coaching course or just a seminar where you can watch it online. You should be challenging yourself to try and improve your ability to to grow as a coach. Well, Pep Guardiola himself said he, he never stops learning. And I mean, if Pep Guardiola tells you he's not stopping learning, why should we? Who right. we to, you know, who are we to say, what, oh, I've completed football? You know what I mean? So... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did when I did the master coach course. That was something that completely blew my mind as well, because like you had all these different um, modules that you had to do, and one of them was like interview a, a coach from another sport. And back then, this documentary had come out on Netflix about LeBron James and how where he grew up and the team that he played on, like the the club team, and then the, this these guys all moved into a certain neighborhood so they could be on the same high school team together. Um, and I was watching the show, and and the thing that was interesting about it was the coach of the team was just one of the dads, and he had never he had never played basketball before, and he had never coached, he had never done any like formal coaching qualifications. Mm-hmm. Yet he's ultimately produced this theme phenom in LeBron James. Like, and LeBron James never had a dad growing up as well. It was just a single mum. So, like, how somewhere in this environment that they, they've created, they've managed to sort of grow this unbelievable superstar. One of the greatest athletes of all time. One of the greatest yeah. athletes ever. And and it's with people who have never played the game before. Like so that's almost like triggered my heart. Yeah, because you, you, you do think then you like no matter how good of a coach you may be, if you don't create the right environment for a player, they'll never flourish. You know, it's like if you plant yeah. a flower, if you plant seeds for a flower, if the soil's dead, it doesn't matter mm-hmm. how how nice the flower's supposed to be, it'll never grow. Uh-huh, 100%. Yeah. So like that part of it learning from different sports also I think is is like unbelievably um important, you know, like his whole, his whole thing was they they played together every day. Like they always played together. They found ways to do things together and play together every day so they felt like a true team and then within that team they all knew their roles. So they would give the ball, obviously, to LeBron, but there was players that they knew, hey, your job's to defend within within our team. And it was it was really interesting learning from somebody else. And I ended up interviewing him as well. I spoke to him and asked him about the the um the show and stuff. So I found that part really interesting. Ricky, you eventually became, I think it was a director of scouting. Was that a new was that a new role for you completely and how was how was the adaptation for you going from coaching to scouting how different was that well it was a really it was a bit of a unique time to be honest like the 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 term director of scouting is i think probably could be used very loosely in that role um but what I would say is when I stepped into it, I got introduced to Gary Smith, who's now the head coach of Nashville in Major League Soccer. And I got introduced to him for another friend. And and Gary, uh, at the time, Atlanta Silverbacks was in a really awkward position. The person that owned the franchise was leaving. The Atlanta Silverbacks played in the NASL, which is like the division below Major League Soccer. Mm-hmm. And they basically had no money. And the uh, all the clubs in the NASL agreed at the last minute to fund the Silverbacks through that entire season. 
So a lot of us that work there work for free. And um, Gary had a lot of agents, a lot of players that were contacting him and he was dealing with multiple things because he never had the staff around him. So he came to me and said, look, this is the system I want to play. This is the profile of each player. These are the attributes in in the system that we're going to play. I want you to basically connect with all the agents, all the players, and I want you to somehow bring all that information in front of me and just give it to me so I can look at them. So what I did, you know, and I was a young guy at that time, what I did is I created like player performance profiles. So I'd contact the I'd contact the agent, say, right, fill out this survey. They filled it all out. They sent me um, YouTube links. And then I created these profiles for Gary and I would send them to him. And a lot of the times he would say, look, in this area, if they don't have A, B and C, it's not something we need right now. We need these specifics. So I'd have to filter through all the players and then send him the ones that fitted our you know, game model or his attributes and profiles. And then Gary would take it from there. And sometimes I would communicate with the agent. Sometimes I would bring players in and help them and um, get set up for a trial with a club. And then it morphed into I would scout games. So there were certain things that Gary looked for in his model that he wanted to know about the other team. So I would do a report. I'd watch a game watch games like ahead of time, break the game down based on what Gary was thinking and then send him a report. And back then, um, Y Scout was a relatively sort of, I wouldn't say new, but it was like the only program on the market. And because I was doing another job, it was like a, a lifesaver for me. You know, I could sit there and watch stuff. I'd get up really early in the morning, watch games, break the games down and Y Scout put them into a presentation and send them to Gary. So the idea of a scout going and sitting in a crowd and watching a game just doesn't work. Also the geographics of America, it doesn't yeah. work. Teams are so far apart that it's almost impossible if you're not getting paid to do that job. Yeah. Well, um, I know here in Ireland, obviously if, if someone was, was scouting, it's what, two hours to go from one side of the country to the other, which really is so minute, but America is literally it's its own continent practically. So it's, it's I mean, I'd imagine in-person scouting is next to impossible. Yeah, it's, I mean, you, you go two hours south of Georgia and you're only halfway out. <laughs> so, like, you know, to go to the Georgia border from here, I think it's like four and a half hours. Mm-hmm. From Atlanta. So that gives you an idea of just getting outside of Georgia, you know. Mm-hmm. And to go to Orlando, it's eight and a half, nine hours. To drive there to Florida, so it, the geographics of it just didn't make sense. So then, for me, it was like a a really cool environment to be in because I got to watch players from all over the world, pretty much, um, and then see how Gary took that information and incorporated it into his team and his model and the way he wanted to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and that morphed like that role morphed. There were some days where I would come in and. Gary would be like, right, we need you to run part of the training session as well. So it went from literally being, you know, just a a, a volunteer person who's, in, you know, introduced for a friend to working with these professional players, you know, and um, I'm very lucky, very fortunate, and 
ultimately ended up one game. Gary couldn't be. Gary was suspended. Steve Guppy, who was the assistant, was away with Ireland. And there was no one to take the team. And I ended up stepping in and coaching against New York Cosmos. So as part of my coaching journey, it was an unbelievable learning experience and just being in that environment and, and learning from those people, you know. So I remember when you took that game, actually, because I followed you for so long now that I do remember you taking that game a couple mm-hmm. of years back. I think it was 2016, 17, was it? 15, it was 15. 2015, what would I look yeah, up? Crazy. I feel old now. <laughs> but this brings me on to my next point, because you said there about analyzing games and how you break games down about i mean it must be about five years ago now i dm'd you on instagram Mm -hmm. and i was just starting out in terms of how i watch football i really wasn't overly confident in my ability to not ball watch everything you know so i I dm'd you and i said how do you break down games yourself and you said obviously you broke it down into the attack defense in terms of high block low block mid block and then transitions but then you said to me because i had a question about what, how do I know what's tactical and what's not tactical? And you said, if something happens three times, that's what you told me, it usually means that it's tactical. And I love that. And I still use that. And it's still just mm-hmm. something I've always thought about. So it was amazing to get you on the podcast. So I could, you know, because I spoke to you so long ago about saying that. But my question that's a cool to, story. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. As I said, like I, I, I was just, I think I was in school at the time. It was five years ago. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it makes me feel incredibly old. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really cool story yeah. now that you're a grown man and you're. Yeah. Grown. yeah. I'm on beard. Yeah. <laughs> but my question to you is. Has your, how you analyze games changed or is it kind of still the same in terms of how you break the game down? What kind of methods do you use? Because obviously if you stifle through so much footage, you need to have, you need to kind of go through it quickly. So you you need to have great workflow in terms of how you, you do things. So how would you, or how has that changed or has it changed? Uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely changed. I don't know. I think the three tactical if the three moments occur it becomes tactical i think that come from gary i think that was something mm-hmm. gary told me and was like if these three things keep happening like log it down make yeah. it make sure you connect because that's a that's a behavior that's occurring over and over again mm-hmm. I, I the only way i could really pos- possibly use as an example is just recently with ol rain like we would try and work almost like a week ahead of ourselves on who we were playing against and it was I was only really there for just over a month, maybe a month. Um, but we would, right, we're playing against, excuse me, we're playing against this team on Saturday. And on Tuesday, I remember I got there on a Monday, I got there on a Sunday night or on a Monday. And then on Tuesday, we were in the locker room doing like, this is what Kansas City are going to do. This is how they're going to play. Um, and the, then the rest of the week was built around hey, this is how they're going to play. This is what we're going to do when we're in possession. And this is what we're going to do when we're out of possession. And then we play the game on Saturday night. So the way in which I guess I look at the game is is a little bit different. I think at different levels, it changes. I always mm-hmm. go back to that. And I think that's where I'm like fortunate that I've worked at different levels. Like when I'm coaching my U14 boys this weekend, I'm not really worried about what the other team's doing. I'm worried about what we're doing and what we worked on during the week. When I was at OL Rain, it was like, we need to be incredibly like uh, clear on what they're going to do and how we're going to play against it. And then when we get the ball, this is what we're going to do to hurt them. 
So I think at different levels that changes. I think in the pro environment, like watching games and clipping games is really important. Like the goalkeeping coach would clip the game the day after mm-hmm. and there were certain areas of the game that it was broken down into. It was like build out play, playing into midfield, playing into the attack, pressing turnovers, transition moments, set pieces. And then we would go through based on what we thought was um, important for us going into the Kansas game and look at those moments, take the moments that we thought were most important. And maybe there was 25 clips, 30 clips, and then we would go into the locker room and show four clips. And that's the biggest challenge. Like, how do you get to 25, 30 clips and just get it down to three or four clips? Because those three or four clips could could take 15, 20 minutes. And anything after 20 minutes, players are sitting there like, right, let's go. I want to yeah. get on the field. You know, so that was perhaps the biggest challenge in terms of scouting. How do you go from all this information you have and then just go and show them three or four clips? And the person that shows those three or four clips is really important as well. Like when I went to Seattle, Sam, who was the head coach, would know everything about those three or four clips. So if a player said, well, why did they do that? Or why didn't why didn't we do this? He would have to be able to say, this is why we didn't do this. This is why we did that. This is why this happened. He would have to know everything about those three or four clips. Because it's almost like, I, I think I, I, there was a, I did a podcast before and I can't remember who the guest was, apologies, but I, they said something to me about how we as coaches or analysts or, or even just football lovers love watching the analytical side of the game, the tactical side of the game and analysing games. Well, not all players enjoy that part. So it's quite, you can't just show them 50 clips and go, look here, they get tired and they get bored because they don't share that same love as we do. Sometimes mm-hmm. they prefer just be on the training pitch, let's go, I want to play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Ricky, I, just... no, I mean, I use an example for that. Like, you know, um, Eugene Lesamere, who's like, had an unbelievable career, won eight world, uh, eight Champions Leagues with Lyon, right? Well, she was one of the players who was at, at Seattle when I first went there. And um, part of my job was we got players that we were assigned to before games and we would send them like their roles for the game. And if they wanted to speak about them, they could come and meet us and we would show them clips on the video, you know, and I sent Eugene Lesamera a roles for... I think it was the Orlando game. We were playing Orlando City. And within minutes, she was like, yeah, I'll come and meet you. Where are you? So I'm downstairs in the team room and she come down and we just sit there watching her. Like, and this is somebody who's been there. Like yeah. she's won everything, but she still wanted to watch. She mm-hmm. still wanted to learn. She still wanted to understand what her role was and what she could be doing, you know? And I found that really super interesting. Super interesting. That is amazing. That's really super interesting somebody at that level is still uh-huh. prepared to sit down and watch and listen and be coached or, or you know be aware of what what and that's can. probably how she you know got to that level just by that's analyzing the opponent yeah, it's amazing ricky i just have one more question because i know i've kept you on so i'm so bad at timekeeping but i've actually really enjoyed the chat. Okay. So I'm, I'm so sorry but i want to ask you about your own tactical philosophy then if you are a coach I know you said you have under 14s boys but just per se you were the head coach of a men's side professional game or whatever everyone has a clear idea of how they want to play 
and even maybe you do integrate that with your under 14s you, you know but mm. everyone has a clear idea every coach has a clear idea on how they want the game to be played what is yours is it you know playing out from the back do you want to be as we spoke about earlier flexible with your approach that you give your players the tools to kind of solve problems you know if you need to go long you go long or do you always want them to go short etc so what is your tactical philosophy yeah i mean i think i i try and i try and give the game back to the players that's one thing i would start with like everything i do i also i always believe that the game is for the players mm-hmm. so the way in which i coach and the way in which i train my teams the way in which i get my teams to play i'm trying to give it back to the players i would say that sometimes as coaches we forget that when we play a game it's about territory and um going from your territory and invading somebody else's territory and winning and taking that territory so one of the things i talk about a lot is if we can play the most dangerous pass whether it's short long in the air and that gets us to a point where we can score a goal play that pass mm-hmm. and then when we lose the ball how do we win it back like immediately as a group and sometimes there's no there's not a a way to win it back immediately as a group so how do we as a group identify where we're at get organized and get balanced and then get back into a position where we can win the ball back win the ball back um so from an attacking perspective it's always about how can we be the most dangerous can a center back hit a 40 yard ball can a center back play the ball into a number 10 who's going to dribble and beat someone giving it giving the choice back to the players and that's where the mapping concept comes into it when i'm coaching my center back he knows the most important pass is the highest pass but if that's not available can we get it to someone else where we can keep possession and still keep moving forwards and then when we lose the ball we're hunting we're hungry and we're about to go and win the ball back as a group and only as a group if we don't if we go as individuals every now and again we'll win it there'll be short-term success but long-term we won't be successful so how do we win the ball back as a group and then within that that's almost like our style of play if you like and then within that there's our game model of we're going to play a certain way to do that so an example is right now when we build out we build out in a 343 our three center backs get wide our two central midfielders are pivots. Our wing backs go high and get in, in line with the forwards. Our um, inside forwards come inside and look for space. And we have a concept where we defend with five, attack with five. We've always got five players that are in a position to defend. We've always got five players that are in a position to attack. Now, within that, there's loads of flexibility. Your wing backs can come inside and take those spaces. Your wide forwards can go outside and take those spaces. Your forward can drop in and become like a number 10 and your your inside forward can go in behind and take the number nine. So there's loads of fluid movement within that. Same at the back. Um, if your centre-back gets a ball and they play into a wing-back, they can get around the wing-back and join the attack and the wing-back drops in and becomes a centre-back. And that's almost like your style of play. And then within that, there's my coaching philosophy that how I work with people and uh, it's more like my core values. Um, be kind to players. So if they take risks, use kindness when they take risks because they won't take risks again if you're an idiot and you get on top of them. 
So first core value is be kind. Second core value is be curious. So um, why did you play that pass? Think about our principles. Why did you perhaps play that pass and we lost possession? Or why did you not step and press that guy or girl because of our principles when we're defending? So be curious and ask as opposed to you didn't do what our formation requires. Ask them why they didn't do it and, and try and think about what were they going through in that moment? Why did they decide to make that point? Yeah. So core value number two, be curious. Core value number uh, three is like uh, be passionate. So if you just stand back and you don't say anything and you think that that's a way of perhaps getting the most out of people, I also think when you're in your training sessions, you need to be passionate and relay that energy to kids. And then the last thing is be relentless. Any other environment that you work in when you're coaching, if you let standards drop, and I'm a big big fan of standards at the moment as opposed to you must do A, B, and C, and then we're good. It's yeah. constant standards. And standards can be anything from when you turn up and you see trash on the floor, pick up the trash, put it in the garbage bin, put it in the bin, to, hey, we gave the ball away, next time can we be better? Or we get, we had a shot on goal when it went over the goal and you say to your teammate, good job, that's not a good job, it didn't even hit the frame, next time get a shot on frame. Good job getting a shot off, but get it on frame next time. So holding yourself accountable and holding your environment and your culture accountable when it comes to everything that you're trying to do. I know that was a bit of a long-winded approach. No, I love that. That's a great answer. The tactical part of it is also incorporated yeah. into the coaching side of things because if you are teaching your players to come inside and find space and they cut, one of them comes inside and one of them doesn't, and then you're shouting at them, well, next time they're not going to go looking for space. They're going to stay where they feel safe. Mm -hmm. So if your curious approach was, hey, you come inside and found that space and you stayed out wide, why did you stay out wide? Oh, well, because I didn't think the wingback was going to come, but the wingback arrived at the last minute. Yeah. Then it doesn't matter how you play. It doesn't matter what your tactical approach is. If you're going to be this black and white coach who just demands your kids do things, it doesn't really matter being tactically and flexible the, the passionate bit resonated with me the most as well because it and it doesn't just apply to football it applies to every job we've all had bosses who are so non-passionate about what they do that it just it 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 projects onto the whole group and everyone i mean why would why would your workers care if you're not passionate about what you do you need to give off that energy that vibe you know yeah, to create that environment so it, it, as i said it's not just to do with football it's everything you need to be passionate about what you do because everyone can feel it. It's, it's You can't see it. You can just feel it off someone that I'm passionate about. Ricky, thank you so much for coming on. I genuinely learned so much from this. And I know for a fact the listeners did too. You're an, you're an incredible guest. Thank you. No, oh, listen, I appreciate it. You know, I love, love talking about the journey of coaching. You know, I've, I've been fortunate to be in different areas and worked at different levels. But I just really consider myself lucky to have worked with some of the people I've worked with and the environments I've been in. And I always feel like you're learning. Like, you know, I didn't I hadn't followed your page and now I'm following your page. And I'm like, wow, I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn loads from this myself. Amazing. So I pre I appreciate you reaching out and uh, and also that so long ago that we connected that you still think you still thought of me. I appreciate oh, that. I, I, as soon as I saw you, I went, 
I was like, Ricky, I've talked to Ricky years ago. I was like, I have to get him on, please. I was like, and when you got back to me, I was like, this is amazing. I really want to tell him the story as well. Ricky, thank you so much for coming on. You've been an amazing guest. Brilliant. Appreciate it. All the best. Cheers.